when people hear about BlackRock, you know, and we look like this huge entity that manages all this money. At the end of the day, we manage money for everybody from the local nurses and teachers and firefighters all the way to massive institutions that trust us to manage the money for them. And so we do know that it's not ours. Every single dollar we manage, we manage for one reason and one reason only, which is to improve the investment experience that those clients have, regardless of whether it's, you know, a school teacher like my father or somebody, you know, running a really large pension, maybe for a series of teachers. And that's what I wish more people knew. Welcome to the Midland Money Mindset. This is a podcast that's all about getting your mind right when it comes to all things money. In every episode, we go deep with engaging guests who provide tangible takeaways and a whole lot of joy along the way. I hope you enjoy these conversations as much as I enjoyed having them. Let's dive into today's show. I'm Larry Sprung, your host for the Midland Money Mindset and founder and wealth advisor of Midland Financial. Today's guest is Michael Lane, head of iShares U.S. Wealth Advisory at BlackRock. In addition to being the head of iShares U.S. Wealth Advisory at BlackRock, he is also a member of the U.S. Wealth Advisory and U.S. iShares Executive Committees. Michael has worked with financial advisors for nearly three decades and oversees the development of advisor-centric solutions, helping advisors build better portfolios. Prior to joining BlackRock, Michael served as the Global Head of Strategic Retirement Initiatives at Dimensional Fund Advisors, where he was responsible for the strategic development and global distribution of retirement solutions for one of the world's premier asset managers. Michael has published three books, including Secrets of the Wealth Makers, as well as a range of articles on financial planning and advisory practices. He is also a member of the Carson Wealth FinServe Advisory Council, and he is kicking off the FinServe Foundation's Next Gen Program, an initiative that will focus on bringing diverse talent to the financial services profession. Michael is also a fellow Binghamton University alum and serves as an executive committee member of the Binghamton University Foundation Board and received the Medal of Distinguished Service in 2019. Listen in for some great takeaways about Michael's journey from Binghamton to BlackRock and how he's making an impact on the profession and why he is so excited about its future. I have the pleasure of being with Michael Lane today, head of iShares U.S. Wealth Advisory at BlackRock. Thanks for joining us today, Michael. It's great to be here, Larry. It's good to see you. I I saw you not too long ago at Excel 2022, and uh, hopefully we'll be seeing you again at Excel 2023, if not sooner than that. So uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. I hope to be there as well. I've been the last two years, and they were the first two years I'd ever attended the Excel conference. And it's amazing, both the content, but also, I mean, the show itself is phenomenal. Yeah. And I'm looking forward this year being in Nashville, a little bit different venue than Vegas the last couple of times. So uh, it it should be fun. And uh, Nashville is a good city from uh, a lot of different respects, food, entertainment, et cetera. So I'm sure it'll be a good time. 
So, Michael, I know a lot about you, and I, I was hoping that you can educate and inform our listeners who you are and a little bit about who Michael Lane is before we dive in and have a conversation. Sure. I probably have to start by saying what's most important is I'm a husband to Lisa, and I'm a father to Kendall, Brooks, and Christian, my three kids who are all involved in college in one way or the other these days. We thought when we had them four years apart that no two would be in school at the same time, but they all are participating in school still. So for different reasons, uh, one going off to medical school and then the other two wrapping up uh, their undergrad degree. So that's probably most important. Absolutely, for sure. (laughs) Absolutely. I grew up in upstate New York in a town called Corning. You know, at the age of 11, which I think has shaped a lot of who I am and what I believe and where I focus, my dad became a single school teacher dad and a father of four, so learned how to do just about everything. Uh, we lived in the country, so learned how to take care of the animals, learned how to take care of myself. At 11, I was doing my own laundry. So it was, I think, a very important part of my life that really got me started in terms of being independent, but also looking out for others because I did have three siblings. I went to Binghamton, where I know you went as well. I went yes. to Binghamton University, not too far away from Corning. And I started my career in the financial services in 1989 and spent my entire career in financial services. Today, I work at BlackRock. I started working at BlackRock in May of 2018, so about four and a half, five years ago. And I'm still very involved in Binghamton University. And I I was just up there in October for a foundation board meeting that I've sat on the foundation board for nearly a decade now. Amazing. Now, you were a, uh, like me, I think you were a colonial, right? <laughs> Not a bear cat as they go by today, correct? That's right. Although, if you had me on video, I have a bear cat behind me on my shelves. <laughs> yeah, I have a bear cat shirt and a colonial shirt because I, I still think of us as colonials, but maybe that'll change over time too. Who knows? So, I have to ask you being a fellow alumni, what is your favorite, the favorite, or maybe a couple favorite memories from your time at Binghamton? There's so many memories because that was such an important part of my life was going to Binghamton. And and that was my first exposure to being part of diverse people, diverse religions, diverse educational backgrounds, economic backgrounds, everything. It was a, it was really a, a big diverse exposure for me. And so there was so many memories, but I'd say probably two, if I were to think of one that is more personal and one is probably set me up for what I'm doing today. Uh, the personal one is uh, one of my favorite memories is the end of sophomore year, beginning of junior year. I had this crush on this girl in class and she sat in front of me in a political science class one time and, and I asked her for notes and she wouldn't give me her notes because I'd missed class for another conflict I had had. She wouldn't give me the notes. She's like, yeah, I remember her saying, you know, if, if you showed up for class, you wouldn't need to ask me. And I'm like, okay, I got it. <laughs> and uh, I walked with her to the student union, which you remember, you may remember the student union in the mini mall where we, a lot of us would meet up to have lunch. And she was going to go one way, I was going the other. And before we departed, I asked her on a date. She said yes. And that was, you know, roughly 35, 36 years ago. And we've been together ever since. So, First date was an interesting one. We went to the movies in Binghamton, and uh, the first movie we ever saw together was Fatal Attraction. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's an interesting first date, but that's a a memory that I can remember standing at the student union like it was yesterday, asking her on my first date. I hated rejection back then. I was very concerned about somebody saying no, so I asked her in a way that she couldn't really reject me. I said, so if I asked you on a date, you'd say yes. 
And if she said no, then I'd say, well, at least I didn't ask you on a date. So (laughs) I had it all figured out. And so that was one. And then the other was really. Well, hold on. Before you move on to the other one, I have a question. Okay. Did you get the notes? She never gave me the notes. (laughs) (laughs) She was very strict about that. And she still is to this day. She is a believer that if you want to excel, you need to participate. You need to be there and show up. And so she's not one to help those that don't show up. So (laughs) fair enough. Fair enough. I have learned that from her. The other one was more of a business memory where, you know, because I didn't come from a wealthy family, I needed to pay largely my way through school. And so one of the ventures that was big back then, you know, I was a student graduated in 89. What was big back then were trying to find establishments, we'll call them, where students could get together, pay an entry fee and bars <laughs> right, and get a chance to get together. Usually it was like fraternities, sororities, things like that. And so I became entrepreneurial during those days in school. And, and I remember one of my favorite memories was going to talk to a bar owner back in the day and convince him that he should let us use his bar for entertainment purposes and and bring students together and and uh, the drinking age was a little different back then he thought we were crazy and we did it and we ended up having roughly between 800 and 1000 people you know every week come to that wow. place and it became one of the most fun places to hang out as a student and so i remember that because i had to influence somebody that did not have the desire or interest in having us participate in his bar but it did work out and I took that in and did that several times when I was in school. And I think that was like my entrepreneurial spirit, which helped me when I became right out of school, a financial advisor. Right. Much different also than growing up on a farm too, no? (laughs) Yes. Significantly different than growing up on a dirt road out in the middle of nowhere. And I say corning, but with, you know, during those years, you know, it was in Caton, New York, which was, you know, maybe 500 people lived there. And I lived on Buckwheat Hollow Road uh, out middle of nowhere. Yeah. So, I mean, was that a tough transition for you, you know, leaving farm life to eventually the big city, right? You ended up in New York City at some point? Yeah, I worked in New York City a couple of times. I worked in New York City back in the early 90s. And uh, still, even though I'm coming to today from Austin, Texas, where I live, I spend a significant amount of time in New York City. Pre-COVID, I was in New York almost every single week. So yes, going from the farm to Binghamton, which was my transition time to eventually working in New York City, those are very different environments. Binghamton being the big city relative to where I was from, and now living in Austin, Texas, which was about the size of uh, Binghamton when I moved here, and now it's become this massive metropolis. So it's interesting to see it grow around me. Amazing. And before we jump into BlackRock, I I understand things have come full circle, and you're back into the, uh, the farm life a little bit too, right? That is true. I actually, he, even in Austin, I have goats and chickens, but in Vermont, where we own a, uh, an apple orchard in Vermont, we do have an orchard. And then also I've recently built a trout pond. So we'll have trout up there as well. So back to, and I have a tractor and I have a big brush hog and I love uh, getting in the tractor and driving around the land and uh, cutting down the field. So yes, I am going back to the roots. There you go. So listen, you, you've been with BlackRock now for a while, and, and they're a very well-known, well-established name. You know, obviously, we have a great relationship with you through our relationship with Carson Group and being a Carson partner firm. What do you wish that people knew about BlackRock? Obviously, there's stuff that goes on in the news and people here and largest asset manager. But personally, what do you wish people would know that maybe they don't know because it doesn't make it to the news or something like that? Yes, there is a lot of news. 
Uh, and when you're the largest asset manager in the world, as one of my friends recently said, when you're the tallest tree in the forest, you're going to catch most of the wind. <laughs> and so that is very true about being the largest. And I wish everyone realized that we focus on one thing. First of all, BlackRock manages today upwards of $8 trillion. And it's not our money. We're not a bank. We don't have a balance sheet. You know, it's not our money. It's other people's money. And one thing that is important to note is we know that it's other people's money that we manage for them. And they tell us how they want that money managed. They make the decision of what investments they get put in, especially in the institutional space, what their investment policy statement is that we have to abide by. If you're buying index funds, those indexes are usually created by some other party, whether it be MSCI or S&P or FTSE. And we know that it's other people's money that they trust us to manage for them. And so I think that's important that everybody understands that when people hear about BlackRock, you know, and we look like this huge entity that manages all this money, at the end of the day, we manage money for everybody from the local nurses and teachers and firefighters all the way to massive institutions that trust us to manage the money for them. And so we do know that it's not ours. Every single dollar we manage, we manage for one reason and one reason only, which is to improve the investment experience that those clients have, regardless of whether it's, you know, a school teacher like my father or somebody, you know, running a really large pension, maybe for a series of teachers. And that's what I wish more people knew. I also wish people understood more about BlackRock is we have 20,000 employees and those 20,000 employees come from different backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds. They come from different countries. They have different political beliefs. And if you look at the diversity that exists within BlackRock, it's no different than the diversity that exists within the world. And so BlackRock should never be labeled as one thing or another. BlackRock is not politically tied. It is a, an amalgamation of a lot of different people that come from diverse backgrounds. And together, I think we represent what the world actually looks like and feels like. And we're just a sort of a, an example of that. When I hear you talking about that, I think about stewardship, right? You know, just like the matriarch or the patriarch of the family would steward for the family's resources and wealth, you're just doing that in a similar fashion just for those matriarchs and patriarchs and helping them be good stewards of their money. And you're helping facilitate that so they can kind of execute on what their family plan is. That's exactly right. And as we continue to grow and as we have scale, the benefit of that is we can drive down cost. And so we can put more money in those matriarchs and patriarchs pockets for their families, for their businesses. And that's one of the, the huge benefits of working with somebody like a BlackRock is as we continue to grow, we continue to drive down price and cost. So therefore, more money gets you know provided to the people who are trusting us to manage their money. I think that's a great point. Now, you and I have spoken a bit about finance and, and social media. You know, how do you think that we could do a better job at getting information out to those who are in most need of financial literacy? You know, one of the things we've talked about is the plethora of information. Some of it is good and spot on. Some of it not so good. It's hard to delineate sometimes the good from the bad. So how do we get that information out to those that are in most need and in terms of financial literacy? One of the things that certain countries, you know, Australia and the UK as two great examples have done is they've differentiated for the benefit of the investor. They've differentiated financial advisors from salespeople. I think that's an important attribute where 
somebody that is representing the client may be different than somebody that is representing the firm. You know, there's different levels of advice and different types of products and stuff that those two might actually provide to a consumer, to an investor. And so they they make people actually put different titles on their business cards, depending upon which they would fall into. I think that we have a challenge when it comes to media and social media and investment related media that we don't hold them to the same standard. And so somebody that runs a newsletter or somebody that wants to post something on a third party social platform can do it without any regulatory oversight. They can do it you know, without any licensing and they don't have to differentiate themselves that this is either pure entertainment, this is not necessarily factual. And so what happens is there's so much information in the ecosystem that investors are reading that it's really hard to delineate what is part of advice or guidance that's regulated and has certain requirements that you have to meet in order to provide that to the consumer. And the other, which is you can say anything and you can make any recommendations. And quite frankly, that may that even some of those recommendations might not be in your best interest. They might actually be in the best interest of the person who is providing that information on a newsletter or a website or something like that. And so one of the challenges I think we face right now when it comes to financial literacy is better defining where that information is coming from, who it's coming from, is that individual or is that entity regulated in some way so that the information is at least following a series of practices and and rules that it's in the best interest of the person reading it to act on it. So I think that we have to do a much better job of following some of the rules and practices we've seen in different parts of the world where they've been much clearer with who's providing information. Is the information solely for the benefit of the client? Is it maybe in the for the benefit of the individual giving it? If they can get you to buy a whole bunch of something where they might own, you know, that should be disclosed. <laughs> and so I think that we have to find ways to improve that. Now, I think that falls on, quite frankly, large firms like BlackRock and others, where because of our scale and our reach, we need to continually focus on how we provide information to investors, very controlled information that's relevant to people of where they are in their life, whether they're a young investor, new investor, they're looking to buy a house, a car, save for retirement, whatever that may be, while at the same time stressing, which we find extremely important. Just like the pharmaceutical drug companies, every commercial you see on TV at the end, it's talk to your doctor about, you know, or talk to your pharmacist about. I really believe at some point that should also be part of the information that talk to your financial advisor about whatever that information is that's being shared. Because even if we provide the best, most understandable information out to the masses about certain topics, whether it be retirement or education savings, whatever it may be, I still am a huge believer. I personally am a huge believer that somebody needs to take whatever that information is that they heard or read and talk to a professional financial advisor about how that might apply to them. Just like you wouldn't take every drug that you see a commercial for on TV. You want to talk to your doctor to make sure, A, it's right for whatever your ailment may be, and B, it doesn't conflict with something else you might already be taking. The same thing holds true for financial information. And whatever somebody's telling you you should do may or may not apply to you, and it may conflict with other types of financial arrangements you've already made. 
Yeah, I agree. I think we need to see that delineation and hopefully that's coming. And hopefully with the likes of BlackRock and other organizations, some of the larger financial institutions can help drive that a little bit. Uh, in terms of financial literacy, that would be extremely helpful because those that don't know, don't know, right? right. And those that do, hopefully they are reaching out to their, their advisor in those cases. But really what we want to impact and help are those people who don't know so that they can kind of delineate where the good and where the bad actors may lie, right? Doesn't mean that everybody on either side couldn't be bad or good. It could present in either way, but at least they have a better shot of making sure that they're going at it right from the beginning. Michael, one other question comes up, you know, being involved with Binghamton, sitting on the on the board, as you mentioned earlier, going back to financial literacy for a moment, right? You know, I've heard for many, many years of being in this profession that we need to increase financial literacy also, you know, take the social media aspect out of it. You know, I've heard, hey, we should institute it in the schools, right? We should institute it in higher education. You know, I haven't seen anything move in that direction. I'm of the ilk really now that it's not going to happen in those venues. And we as parents, you talked about your kids earlier, that we as parents have to really start working towards instilling this type of mindset of financial literacy into our children and not rely on the education system. Do you have any thoughts on that, uh, you know, about that conversation that goes on every day, it seems like? Yeah, I, I do. And and it's something that I'll be honest with you, Larry, I've not done as good a job as I should as a parent of educating my children, even though I'm in the financial services business, I'm in the money business, and I still haven't done a great job of educating my own children about it. And part of that is, as a financial advisor, and I'm not a financial advisor, you obviously are a financial advisor, but if I was a financial advisor, that is something that has not been something where we bring the children into the discussion that often. We tend to speak to the people who have the money and we're managing the money for, but what we're not doing all the time is bringing those children along so that we can help educate them in, about what's the purpose of the money. Why are we managing money a certain way? What are the, the family's goals? And so I think that there's, as you were mentioning with our children, we have to do a better job of helping our children understand what it is we're managing money towards. What are our goals? What are the things that are important to us, make sure we understand what's important to them as well and include them more in the discussion about money. I don't think we do that much. It's almost like taboo. The kids you know, don't get to know what's going on. And I think you can do that without disclosing the actual dollars and cents. You could do it in a conceptual format, right? Absolutely. And that's the thing. We could talk about it conceptually and, and get that point across. But there are certain new programs that are coming along. Even it's a, it's a microcosm of education. But even if you look at the NIL program, name, image, and likeness, which now is an athlete, you know, participating in sports at a higher ed institution, you can basically now get sponsored and sell your name or image or likeness for a given amount of money. Football players, baseball players, they're playing college sports. And they should absolutely be getting a financial literacy course before they are allowed to sign on the bottom line of that NIL contract, because some of these Young people are going to get a million dollars or more given to them while they're in school. And who knows what's going to happen, whether they're going to go pro, whether they're going to get injured, whatever could happen. And that might be the biggest chunk of money they ever receive. And that's a great example of financial literacy is critical for them. And I do see financial planning programs popping up more and more across the country. And I think that's 
fantastic. As more universities provide that type of coursework available is great. But again, that's going to touch a very small number of people at the higher ed institution. Most are never going to go to those classes unless we make it mandatory, just like we make it mandatory to take a language or we make it mandatory to take some type of arts, whether it be music or physical or whatever it may be. Why aren't we making it mandatory to take a basics of financial planning across the entire spectrum of high school and college? Why are we making it mandatory to take language, but not something that's going to shape or make a massive amount of impact on someone's entire lifetime and get them started young? So I think we need to move in that direction. If it could happen, I think it would be great. I just, I've been hearing this conversation for so many years now, and I don't see it happening that I'm kind of punting on it and thinking that, to your point, we have to have those conversations as families. And one of the things that we do with the families we serve is we always try to bring the kids in the mix. We try to get them educated early. What's an IRA versus a Roth IRA? What are the benefits of starting early? So at least we can start helping the parents who may not be in a position to educate their kids because they're not in the role that we are. We can help them do that. So thank you for sharing that. And I've heard you say... And you share that early in your career, you learned going back to kind of what you were talking about earlier, being a fiduciary almost, right? That you wanted to do the right thing. Can you share that story with us? I look back and and this was really early in my career, probably around 1991. So I was 23 years old. I was new in our business and, you know, what we were taught was, you know, you go out, you fill out the fact finder. The fact finder was all the questions you needed a potential client to answer for you so you could come back with some suggestions. I couldn't give advice because I wasn't a, a registered investment advisor, but I could at least, you know, sort of give some ideas to people and they could make the decision of what they wanted. And so I remember sitting down with this family uh, near Binghamton, New York, and asking them a series of questions. I, you know, you ask them, uh, how much do you have in mutual funds? Nothing. How much do you have in your 401k plan at work? Nothing. How much do you have in stocks and bonds? Nothing. And then I remember asking the question, how much do you have in your checking account? And the person said $300,000. I was like, <laughs> you've got nothing in any type of investments. You have $300,000 in your checking account. And they worked as a machinist at Borg Warner. They had a certain level of income. They had social security that was going to kick in and pay them a certain amount but they had a shortfall. They had a need for more than what he was going to get just from his social security and a small defined benefit plan. He needed some more money. And so I I remember going back to my office after getting all the information from that person. And I I was not acting at the time working for a company where I was a fiduciary, where I was a registered investment advisor. I was on the other side of it where I was, you know, acting more as a salesperson. I remember going back and looking at all the different options that existed for somebody who needed to produce some additional income. And if you think back in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, interest rates, you know, on certain, you know, investments were like 12, 13 percent. They were massive because of uh, the environment we were in coming out of the super high inflation rates and high interest rate period. And I went back and part of what made sense for that individual was to actually provide them a portion of that money into a lifetime annuity. Rates were super high. The income would last a lifetime. You could name the spouse as a joint beneficiary. So the income would last as long as needed for both of their lives. And I remember providing that as part of the opportunities that they could choose from. And that's one of the things that they chose. And I felt great about it. It was the right thing to do for the client. I came back to my office and I remember my district manager was furious with me. 
because I had provided something that, yes, it was right for the client, but I could only get paid once. <laughs> I couldn't keep <laughs> moving it around and getting paid over and over. And I remember just feeling like, ah, oh, but that's not what we should be doing in this business. It right. shouldn't be about us getting paid. It should be about them achieving their goals. And that was a 23-year-old new person in this business. That, to me, was like a defining moment that I wanted to always make sure I was doing what was right for the client. And I don't care if I'm going to get in trouble when I go back to the office. I want to do what's right. And, you know, I've worked uh, largely with the registered investment advisor community now for about the last, well, since 1994, 28 years. And when people ask me, what do I love about this business is the majority of the people I work with on a day-to-day -day basis have one person and one person only in mind when they make recommendations, and that's the client. And that, I think, is one of the greatest improvements of our business from when I started in the business back 33 years ago. I agree, too, because I, I started in a similar role had a similar uh, experiences through some of the larger brokerage firms and banks. And that's what led me to, you know, really looking at, at starting an independent and going the RA route. So thank you for that. It resonates very closely to me because and, and my story. So I, I appreciate it greatly. You know, with all the changes in our profession right now, what are you most excited about? I'd say what I'm most excited about is the intersection between technology and risk. And so what do I mean by that? If we think about how we've measured risk for clients for decades, it's been like risk tolerance questionnaires. It's been about me asking you, Larry, you know, you're, you're, uh, you know, somebody that I'd like to work with, uh, manage your money. One of the questions I might ask you is on a scale to one to 10, how risky are you? <laughs> you know, are you a one? Are you a 10? If I don't ask you that question, I might ask things like, so if your portfolio dropped 20% tomorrow, would you sell? Would you buy more? Would you stay put? And I try to evaluate your level of risk. And that's an important discussion to have with a client. You know, first establish the goals. What's the purpose of the money? Anything that's values driven that you'd like to be part of this. And then What's the right type of portfolio to help you achieve those, given the level of risk somebody's willing to achieve? And that's how we've done it over decades. But what I love about some of the technology intersection with what's happening when it comes to trying to understand risk better and, and client risk better is the ability now, uh, and I use it for myself just to keep myself honest, is the ability to use scenario testers like we have with Aladdin at BlackRock, where now it isn't me trying to peg you to a six or a seven or an eight on the scale of one ten for risk. But instead, there's opportunity for me to find out from you, the client, a little bit more about your concerns and, and the things that are most troublesome to you and be able to illustrate to you if X were to happen, uh, interest rates go up, you know, one percent, prices of gasoline, you know, and inflation goes up a dollar, you know, per gallon. Inflation goes from 2% to 8%, like we've seen. How would that impact your portfolio? What are the likely outcomes in your portfolio if the easiest one is, say, interest rates change? And most people don't understand how that impacts a portfolio. That's a very interesting dialogue to have and, a, and an expectation management service to have with a client to better understand how portfolios interact with market events. And make sure before you invest a client's monies, finding out whether or not they're actually okay with what some of these variables are and how that impacts their portfolio. To me, that intersection of being able to deliver that type of 
scenario testing environment where you can put their portfolio in and then illustrate all these, you know, there's like 30 different market events that could take place. And what would the impact be? Making sure that they understand that for every portfolio comes with risk. And the more risk you take, you would assume the higher expected return. But what people don't understand is the more risk you take, also the higher probability that you're going to have some very uncomfortable periods of time like we've had this year with markets being down anywhere from you know 20 to 40 percent in 2022 and who knows where you know we'll be in 2023 so those are the types of things where i suggest that the intersection of technology being able to take a portfolio plug in different scenarios be able to sit with a client and illustrate what the impact on their portfolio would be get everybody to agree that that portfolio is aligned with the goals and the purpose and the objectives and the values. But understand, if something happens in the market, we've already illustrated the potential outcome that that could have on your portfolio. I think the most important part of that is hopefully, uh, if we keep reminding clients that, that this could happen, that they then are much better positioned to understand what's happening with their portfolio when these market events will eventually happen. And that's what I think is important because one of the most important things for the client to have a great investment experience is to not change their, you know, their, their investment experience over and over again or their investments over and over again and try and time markets and run from markets, but instead understand markets so they, the client feels more comfortable sitting and waiting out what might happen because they understood better how their portfolio interacts with market events. Yeah, I think that's a great technology. It's a great tool. We use, we use some of those tools here to kind of illustrate that. I think the telltale sign of somebody's risk tolerance, though, when push comes to shove is how they feel when those statements start showing up. You really get a real sense of what their risk tolerance really is at that point in time. So, you know, you try to do the best planning you can, and then you have to address the, that as it, uh, as it arises, right? And it's important for investors of all walks of life to know that it doesn't matter how seasoned you are and how long you've been in the business. We all have our moments where we have buyer's remorse or investor's remorse. And we all are like, oh, did I do the right thing? Was I invested correctly? That's natural. The thing you don't necessarily want to do is act on that remorse because that that is when you usually make big mistakes with your investment portfolio. And if you're in a financial advisor, the worst thing you can do is have your own personal remorse of your own portfolio <laughs> dictate how you're managing other people's money. That's a disaster, but I've seen that happen way too often. Agreed. Agreed. So uh, we talked about Excel a little bit earlier and, and looking forward to 2023's uh, Excel, but at uh, the 2022 Excel, Ron Carson, you, you shared a stage with him. He had asked you what freedom means to you. And we, you know, we're talking a lot with our families about find your freedom and the impact that that's having on their lives and kind of thinking about their life in a, in a different way. And he had asked you on your scale of freedom where you stood on a scale of one to 10. And I believe you came across and said you were at a three at that point. How are you doing now from your score of three that you gave yourself in September? And why do you think so many people struggle with this idea of finding their freedom? Yeah, it's a great question, Larry. And I, and I was very vulnerable on stage when I said it, you know, I felt like I probably would score myself a three. 
I received many notes after that that I'm not a three, you know. <laughs> you know, I have done things that hopefully would make me want to score higher. But you know, the first thing is when somebody asks you, "What does find your freedom mean to you?" The easy answers that come to mind for probably most about everybody is time and money. Right. Freedom means I have more time. Freedom means I have more money because if I had more money, I'd probably have more time. Those two are not correlated, I would suggest. Uh, probably the more money you have, the less time you have because you're probably doing things to make that money unless you won the lottery. Sure. And that actually has its own issues. Those are like sort of, I think, normal knee-jerk reactions when somebody asks. When Ron asked me that question, what does freedom mean to me? I took a little bit of a different route. What freedom means to me is, and I suggested it was happiness. And happiness to me is freedom because to me, that's the truest sign of, of freedom is, am I doing all the things I want to do to create happiness for me? Or am I doing things that I have to do because it's something about my job I don't like, but I need to have this job to make money to live? Is it something that's not going well in my family situation, but I can't get out of that situation? And so I don't have happiness with that. Are my kids not having a great experience? And therefore that's distracting from my happiness. And I want to be very clear, when I said happiness, I was looking at it from a different perspective. Those are things, all of what I just mentioned are things that would, would impact your happiness. For me, what at this point in my career, because I've, I've surpassed a lot of the goals I set. I mean, when I was at Binghamton University, as you were, I was hopeful someday that I would be able to afford a new car, that I was hopeful right. someday you know, that I could buy a house. You know, There were things that were my goals that I just hoped someday I would be able to achieve because of the background I had. And where I came from, like those were things that if I could do that, that would be unbelievable. And so then, you know, you achieve those at some point in your life. Many do, some don't, but I, I was able to achieve those things in my life. And so it's moved a little bit beyond what my goals were when I was 21 years old. And I've surpassed a lot of what would make me happy. And so happiness now is different. For me, happiness is truly, and, it, and I don't say this lightly, it's about helping others achieve their freedom. It's about helping them achieve their happiness. And for me, particularly what I am very engaged with and what is driving my score of the three is how many people am I impacting to improve that for them? And I said a three to Ron that day in front of 2000 of my new friend, <laughs> because I don't feel like I've done enough of that. I don't feel like I've had enough of an impact. I feel like I've got an incredible next 20, 30 years ahead of me to make a much bigger impact on others and to help them achieve their freedom and help them achieve their goals. And so that's what I'm focused on. That's that's why I go back to Binghamton University to do talks. That's why every single student who sends me a note, I respond to them and I try to help them, you know, weed through what, you know, is, is their priority and where they would like to go in their life and try and do what I can to help. And that's where I'm trying to spend what in my free time when I'm when I'm not you know, running the wealth business for iShares uh, or doing other things like that's what I'm focused on. And so I scored myself low. Am I a happy person? If, you know, if we just looked at happiness in general, yeah, I'd be like a nine. I think that puts it in perspective because I don't think that that translated in the conversation on stage that day, but now it makes complete sense, total sense. So we're happy to hear you're like a nine on that side. And, you know, we hope that in the years to come, you move helping people find their freedom from a three to a nine. Cause then, you know, in my world, you're 99 and you're Wayne Gretzky. So, uh, that's awesome. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so uh, I've also heard that wine is a, a big passion of yours and you have a vineyard. 
how have you turned your passion into a, a, a business, into a venture? You know, one of the things we talk about here is going back to what you just said. We, we don't talk about necessarily happiness. We talk about joy, which is basically equal to happiness, just a different word, synonym. But how have you turned this passion into a, uh, a venture for yourself and the family? When I first planted the vineyard, I thought it would be a commercial activity where I would sell it. And uh, actually, I will take that back. The first was like, it would be really beautiful because to me, vineyards are beautiful <laughs> because I love the look of the vines and everything. So I thought it was aesthetically pleasing. Then we actually produced amazing grapes. Like we didn't expect to produce such great grapes in Texas, but we planted a Sangiovese grape, which does very well in heat and limestone. And it's done unbelievably well. And so then we started producing really good wine. So then you start thinking, well, maybe I can sell this. <laughs> and then what we decided was instead of selling it, one of the other things that we're passionate about and we love to do is entertain. And we have a, a unique property here in Austin, Texas that, you know, we've used for entertainment purposes, just hosted a, a joint party during F1 with uh, one of the race teams and had their drivers here and, and guests. And so that I love doing. And what we'll do is serve the one at those events. And so what I visualize doing also in Vermont with the apple orchard at some point is the same thing, having some sort of a business related to that, that, makes it fun to come to the place in Vermont or the place here in Austin where it's not just that you're going over to somebody's house, but you're actually you're going and you're having an experience at that person's property and doing more and larger and larger scale events. That's the venture, I would say, is eventually getting to the point where our properties, as our kids continue to grow up and, and you know, we're empty nesters now, as they move on and have their lives and stuff, and they're not here as much, unfortunately, as, as they still are today, then I would love the idea of turning these properties into more of uh, almost event centers geared around wine here in Austin and maybe even uh, a cider business or something up in uh, in Vermont. That to me would be amazing. the ultimate retirement. You know? <laughs> There you go. There you go. So I also heard that you're looking to start a podcast with your son. And maybe this goes into our conversation earlier about financial literacy. And maybe maybe you're looking to catch up on some of those conversations. But I understand you're looking to start a podcast and you're looking to talk about money. What do you hope to accomplish by you know launching this podcast? We've actually uh, recorded the first couple. We're not sure yet when we'll launch it. Uh, it might be in the next few months. We'll see. But the concept was, how do you marry somebody like myself that's been in this business and written books on this business for over 30 years with the Generation Z and millennial generations that have not been investors for as long and then, quite frankly, have had very different investment experiences than I have because some of the types of investments they've made and the instruments they've used to invest in didn't even exist when I was younger. Right. And their appetite or understanding of volatility far surpasses my appetite and understanding of volatility because the things they might invest in as disease and the millennials and others some of those have lost 99% of their money, 70% of their money pretty frequently, whereas that wasn't really the case in the things that I was investing in when I was their age. So I think there's a, a lot of differences in the way that we approach investing from the different generations. And so I thought it would be interesting to marry those two and have my children sort of talk to me about what they're investing for, what's the purpose of their money, what are the things that they think about when they're investing, and then have them ask me questions about, from my perspective, what it would do. But there was another reason that we did this, besides just having a, a conversation about investing among very different generations. The other thing that I hope that 
we can do for people, and it goes back to one of your very first questions, is how do we have better dialogues with our children about money and what money means to us? You know, that to me is a very important conversation that we need to improve. And it goes beyond just providing information to newer investors. It goes to providing almost like a a pathway for how people like us who have children of ages from, you know, 18 to 30. And how are we having those conversations or how could we have those conversations? How do I actually approach that conversation with my children? And so hopefully these video series podcasts will provide not only information about things to think about when you're investing, especially as newer investors, but also maybe provide a bit of a pathway of how to have the conversation with your children. Great. I'm looking forward to it. I think that's great. And I'll probably listen to it with my son. I'll send it to him and both my boys have them listen too. Cause, uh, listen, I, in full disclosure, I've learned from them. There are like some of those investment vehicles that you're referring to or alluding to my kids wanted. And, uh, I delved into a couple of them, not in a huge way, just so I can have an understanding that as, they have an interest to understand what they're interested in. And also the families that we serve, some of them are asking about it. Some of their kids are asking about it. And if I don't have a vested interest, it's hard for me to understand what's really going on there. So I'm really interested to hear and see those conversations. So I can't wait for that to come out and I'll I'll look for that for sure. Now we end every show by asking each of our guests the same question, Michael, because we are all about joy here, right? And we talked about it earlier. You used the word happiness. We, we use the word joy. So what did you do today that brought you joy and put you in the right mindset for success? I didn't know that was your last question. So this is great. And I have a great answer because it's what we talked about earlier. So I had a call scheduled earlier this morning with a young woman who graduated from Binghamton University. And we actually went through and talked about several current students and what we can do to help them achieve their goals and introduce them to people that would enable them to pursue their dreams. And that was how my morning started today. On, on the, like my fourth meeting was with her walking through, how are we going to help these students that came to a talk that she and I did jointly at Binghamton recently have a better chance of getting their foot in the door with the right type of people in the right areas to pursue their passion. So talk about getting yourself off on the right foot. Talk about moving that number three up to a four like that. That is uh, how my day started today. Amazing. Sounds like it kicked off it to a great start. And uh, what a better day to do it than when we were talking, because uh, it makes for a great answer to the question. And I could see why you're so excited today and why you were very easily to move that three very, you know, up when we were talking about it earlier. So that's amazing stuff. And, and thank you. I, I listen, I like you, if somebody from Binghamton reaches out to me, I always take the call and make time to have a conversation with them. If I could help and lend value in any way whatsoever, why not? It's uh, it's a great way to give back. And, you know, I think I get as much out of it as they do, uh, which is what I'm sure you're alluding to and kind of saying that you do too. So it's amazing that you do that. Thank you for doing that as well. And uh, listen, we're going to have all of your information in the show notes, but if people want to connect with you, learn more about Michael, learn more about BlackRock, what's the easiest and the best place for them to do that? I'm on LinkedIn. A lot of the video series that I do, whether it's things you should be reading or even uh, eventually the discussions with my children will be out on there. So 
definitely uh, look up Michael Lane BlackRock or Michael Lane iShares on LinkedIn. And, and then I always find that if you just Google you know, Michael Lane BlackRock, you'll get all sorts of different things that'll pop up. That's how probably the best way to find out more. Amazing. Well, Michael, I appreciate your time. I appreciate you joining us on the show and uh, make it a great day. Thank you. It was great to be here. Thank you for joining us this week on the Midland Money Mindset. Make sure you visit our website at midlandmoneymindset.com and smash the subscribe button so you don't miss a show. We encourage you to help others find our valuable content and please don't keep us a secret. You can also schedule an Is There a Fit call right from our website or by using the link that you'll find in the description section of your podcast player or app. And be sure to join us for our next episode to learn more about getting your mind right when it comes to all things money. The opinions voiced in the Midland Money Mindset Show with Lawrence Sprung are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. No strategy ensures success or protects against loss. To determine what may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, financial, or tax advisor prior to investing. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Guests on the Midland Money Mindset Show are not affiliated with CWM LLC.